Alright folks, welcome back to The Africanist. My name is Bamba and I have the pleasure today to welcome another special guest. His name is Dr. Tony Vandermeer. Dr. Vandermeer teaches at UMass Boston. He teaches uh, black leadership, civil rights movement, introduction to Africana studies and other subjects that revolved around black folks and African people of African descent. Dr. Vandermeer, welcome to The Africanist. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. All right. Dr. Vandermeer, you are uh, you are an activist. You led struggles for the masses, especially in the Boston area. Could you tell us more about your years of activism in Boston and other parts of the country? Well, so I've been in Boston uh, since 1973, uh, but originally I'm from Harlem, New York, uh, and uh, end up spending a junior high school in high school in uh, Yonkers, uh, New York. Um, just a point of information, my mother is from Charleston, South Carolina. She's a good old Geechee girl, and my father was from Paramaribo in Suriname in South America. When I was, uh, I, I would say my activism sort of hit me, I, I would say since junior high school. Um, and two major things actually happened. Um, one, I lost uh, uh, my 12 year old brother in 1969 uh, to a heroin overdose. He was the youngest heroin uh, overdose victim in, in Harlem at the time, um, and which was completely devastating. And so this is during the Vietnam War, you know, Black Power Movement and so forth. Uh, but in, 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 in 1970, I believe, around Orangeburg and Kent State, when, you know, students were being, you know, uh, murdered on, on college campuses, that also had a profound impact on me. And I remember uh, us, um, you know, actually protesting, you know, in junior high school. Uh, and I just came to school one day and, you know, it was, it was mostly white students who were sitting in the hallway. And I said, well, what you doing? They says, well, you know, the, you know, Kent State, you know, went down. And I said, oh, well, where, where's my armband at? <laughs> right. And so, you know, I sat down with him and then we had a black principal at the time, Robert Dodson, who mm -hmm. uh, came in and, and started going like, you know, what are you doing in my hallway? <laughs> and the, the white students got scared. But I said, I said we protest <laughs> Right. And um, he was pretty dramatic, you know, he mm -hmm. stretched his hand and says, come here, you know. And, but I said, no, we're not going nowhere. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. But he was a real good guy. You know, he negotiated with us. And I thought I was in real trouble then. But he says, you guys need to send a, a letter to Richard Nixon. Wow. You know, and it, well, he, he brought me in office and he talked to me, you know, but he was talking about ecology and student unrest and what's happening in South Africa. And I was like, I don't know nothing about that. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was like baptism by fire. You know, I was mm -hmm. learning these things, you know. Uh, and so the Vietnam War went on. I remember in high school, you know, we walked out of high school and in protest. But uh, but when I got to Boston, um, you know, you had the. Uh, busing situation uh, going on. And I remember in 74, um, some of the professors took us to one of the big demonstrations that Amiri Baraka was at and uh, uh, Dick Gregory. Uh, and we had one of the first black senators, Bill Owens. And we were, you know, uh, getting ready to protest in Boston. And, you know, it, it got stopped because once we get ready to cross uh, the Mass Avenue to go down Boston Street, the police stopped us, you know. Mm -hmm. But I was there with my professors and everything. And so, you know, I sort of got that bug in 74. So 
I would say in 75, I ran into Akram uh, Muhammad and or Akram Burton. And, uh, you know, they were uh, trying to, folks from Tufts University was trying to organize a National Black Student Conference. And so I got involved and became one of the organizers, a citywide organizers. We set up, you know, citywide organization. And then we had a big conference in 1976 at Tufts. We had a, mm-hmm. a citywide black student network and we developed a National Black Student Association. So it was through that process that I ran into a lot of people who were involved in SNCC, mm-hmm. you know, uh, people involved in RAM, Revolutionary Action Movement, uh, uh, Robert Williams, Ella Baker, uh, Yuri Kochiyami, um, you know, uh, Reverend Charles Cohn of Carroll, Illinois. I mean, all these heavyweight and activists, right? And I, you know, I was, I was, I was, I was mentally dizzy. It was like, mm-hmm. wow, you know. <laughs> so I had a lot to learn. Yeah. Uh, and I was on fire. And plus, this was the height of, you know, busting and other kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, um, you know, I, I started to take that very serious, and and you know, so that we 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 need a complete radical change. I was convinced. You know, at that point, I mean, I was oh, you pretty much certified at that point, right? Mm-hmm. So I would say, you know, from then on, I, I got involved with a lot of other uh, local uh, uh, organizing. I remember working with a group of uh, women called Crisis, and uh, they were dealing with uh, issues that was happening to black women. There was a number of black women who were being murdered uh, in Boston, and so as a student, we were organizing, you know, uh, uh, support for that. Uh, we're leading different demonstrations around some of the shootings and different things and stuff that was happening around the country. Uh, so it, it was full-fledged. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had been involved, I got involved with uh, some of the people who had been part of RAM and it was part of the African People's Party. Uh, and so I was involved, uh, you know, with that. I remember in 1979, we had uh, uh, took about two buses to New York. We had, we had organized a national black human rights mm-hmm. uh, demonstration at the U.N., and so we had maybe about 8,000 people who had participated in that. You know, I was like the Northeast Regional Coordinator uh, of that uh, that process. Um, and so it's been, you know, one demonstration after another in now. trying to organize, uh, you know, our communities mm-hmm. and ne- networking that regionally and nationally and in some ways internationally. You were still organizing here in Boston. And recently, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you have led a group of black artists to um, uh, protest against some some actions that yes. <clears throat> yes. Eastern well, University uh, did. Um, so even before that, you know, I would say that um, when Katrina r- went down, mm-hmm. um, I had, wor- had worked with, uh, you know, uh, many uh, activists, you know, nationally, um, you know, trying to address that question uh, around what happened to Katrina. Uh, and we were, you know, uh, was having meetings in in Atlanta, in the Mississippi. Um, and I remember uh, we had one meeting in Mississippi uh, that was dealing with black activism. And uh, Chokwe Ulamumba, who eventually was the mayor of, uh, of, uh, of Jacksonville, Mississippi, you know, was participating, um, you know, in, uh, in that process. And we had stayed over Chokwe's house that night. And I asked, I asked him, I said, you know, like, What's the politics of Jackson? And he says, you know, it's about 70, 80% black. I said, well, y- y'all y'all running the city council or what? He's like, mm-hmm. Joe, you, what? you should be running for mayor. And he was, well, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So he eventually ran for city council and mm-hmm. won, and then he ran for mayor and Man, won. Okay. And then he had, he, had, he had passed. But we were trying to 
organize, uh, you know, more like a black left, you know, more black radicals mm -hmm. to intervene in these process and organizing communities. Uh, and so uh, eventually, you know, we develop a network. Uh, and, uh, and from that network, we put together the uh, Freedom Manifesto. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and, and the whole idea was to, to sort of revitalize um, uh, the black liberation movement. Uh, because it's been fragmented, you know, as a product of, of Pro and so forth. Um, and so we, you know, we made some efforts. There's still some, you know, s you know, some, a lot of work that needs to, uh, needs to happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, uh, from that, you know, you had various other demonstrations and, and various things happening, you know, within the community, uh, of course, the Trayvon Martin, you know, uh, case and, um, you know, the Ferguson, you know, situation. I mean, it's just one thing after another, mm -hmm. you know, around doing it. Um, and so, uh, and, and, and I would say even currently, even in Boston, I was one of the advisors uh, with the Boston Black uh, Lives Matter, you know, group. Uh, but I've been working, you know, I went to Northeast University and I've been working with the African-American Master Artists in Residency Program, AMARP. Mm -hmm. And so I've been a member with AMARP since uh, 2002. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, now, the founder of AMARP was Dana Chandler Akinduru, uh, who uh, was at Northeastern. And when I was a work-study student, I used to make the frames for his painting. Um, and so eventually I was part of that. And so we, that's been a program at Northeastern for 40 years plus. Now, Northeastern has kicked us out of this building that we've been in, and, you know, it's just so ridiculous. So, and these are master artists, internationally known artists uh, that have a space uh, there. And so we've been fighting them for the past couple of years, um, you know, to deal with that. And, and now with the pandemic and also the anti-racism movement, you know, it's proliferated even more so. So, like, everybody's got a, a platform or, you know, some points which is excellent. Mm -hmm. You know, the question is, how do we align that? Mm -hmm. So did they tell you the reason why they kicked you out of that space? Uh, you know, um, people in power, uh, in racist institutions, do what they want to do because they feel they can do it and they have the power. So it was no real uh, uh, reasons uh, to, to do that. It's just that they felt that we weren't the flavor of the month anymore. And they could do what they want. And that's been our issue is that we have to learn to negotiate and to deal with structural inclusions in things and just not some promises, you know, so that, you know, when a new flavor comes up, boom, you know, you out the door. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, it, it was no real, you know, legitimate reason. Well, part of it is that they want that building because that building like on the market is probably worth eight million dollars now so and they're in the community they're not on the, the campus per se so they have some ideas they're not sharing it with us you know but we've had the support of the city the mayor you know in the community and so you know it's a it's a battle you know and uh mm -hmm. and so the whole idea is we'll, we'll see what happens and sometimes you have to shame them you have to embarrass them to show them that uh, they're not good corporate citizens or communities you know uh partners uh and so forth uh, and so uh, we're still fighting that on that front. Mm -hmm. So in your years of activism in the 70s, 80s, and, and today, have you seen any major changes in the way black folks try to address systemic racism 
and then in the way the power structure has responded to their demand. So depends on how we uh, define change. Uh, so you can move from one position to another position, right? Uh, and you still may not have any clothes, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I would say <clears throat> that uh, in some ways, uh, that if you, you look historically, um, it's important to say that at one point we were considered non-persons in America, uh, and that we were, we were, uh, you know, property, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, that eventually we became dissidents because they said, well, you, you know, slavery is abolished. Uh, and so then they said, uh, you now you are, uh, you know, you are, uh, a citizen, you know. Now, the part is that they really didn't ask us, you know, to take a plebiscite or a vote and say, well, what do y'all want? You, you want to go back to Africa? You want your own land? Or you want to come into our house? That process wasn't done. Um, and then after that, you know, the, the, the right to vote for, for black men and so forth, even still, they didn't really have that, you know, for a little while they did, and then they took it back. Um, and so those, uh, particularly in the United States, those, uh, um, uh, Reconstruction Amendments or the first civil rights amendments, you know, supposed to have, you know, brought some structural change, but it didn't. We're still at the same place. In fact, and based on Dred Scott decision of 1857, it said black men had no right that uh, a white men was bound to respect. respect. That's the Supreme Court decision, mm -hmm. right? And so, and then after that, you know, President Johnson, after they passed the uh, emancipation, uh, the uh, ab abolished slavery in the, in the uh, 13th Amendment, he tried to, you know, take that out and said that, you know, God is white, you know, uh, this is a white man's world and, and it's going to stay that way. But the radical Republicans, you know, pushed forth the, you know, the 14th Amendment and so forth. But we're at the same place that we were back then. And even though you had the civil rights movement of the, of the, of the 50s and the 60s, right, uh, you know, the whole piece of voter suppression. Uh, so we're, we're, we're still aren't, aren't participating in this democracy, uh, so-called democracy, in the way that we should. In fact, even white folks ain't participating in, in it the way that they should because the whole, you know, electoral college piece, you know, how could you have a president win and he lost by 3 million votes. It don't make any sense, right? Uh, but the people who structure that, who's in power, it makes sense to them. So so when we look at change, uh, it, that in many ways is not structured. The changes is that before, you know, they had for colored, you know, uh, bathrooms and cemeteries and water fountains and so forth and seats. Well, you know, those have been removed, right? Um, and so now you can go to school with white people and you could work in places. So they have this funny uh, form of integration. But in terms of, uh, uh, you know, in terms of equal pay, you don't have it in terms of where we live in, in services. You don't have it in terms of health care. You don't have it in education outcomes. You don't have it. Um, but what you do have is you have more black people who have shirts and ties and a little bit more money in big cars and big houses than you had before. And so people would say that's changed, but that's changed for who, right? And so what the pandemic really showed us or uncovered for us is that the deep impact of structural inequalities and racism in the society and so forth. And that's why you have so many people in the streets now, right? And not just uh, locally, but nationally and globally, because people say, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's something fundamentally wrong here. So that there is 
some changes that uh, some slick politicians can say, you know, things are getting better, but for who, right? When you see what's happening for the very least of us, and so as Dr. King would say, injustice, uh, a threat to in, uh, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So if, if there are other people who are having hardships, how I'm going to feel comfortable in saying that things have changed for me. You know, now the truth is I teach at university, I get a good salary. Yes, I have privileges, but yo, they'll hit me in the head, <laughs> right? Drag me out of car, lock me up on my own campus, which they did before. You see what I'm saying? Locked uh, you up on your yeah, own. Arrest me, exactly. Hmm, we, right, we're like, right. I want to come back to that later. Right. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, and so forth. And uh, with all of, all, uh, all of that, so how's it changed for me, mm-hmm. right? Uh, uh, and so forth. But I have to admit, yes, some of us make more than others. But what about the others? So that's what we have to begin to really uh, quantify what we mean by change. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so if you're running for office, of course, you're going to throw some slick words and make it, you know, make it sound good and positive, you know. But the truth, but we've come a long way. Right? We, we pushed the structure to try to at least open the door up a little bit more, but they're trying to close it back on us. So you mentioned earlier the black liberation movement. What do you call the Black Liberation Movement? Would you consider, for instance, Black Lives Matter as part of the Black Liberation Movement? Because I'm on, on social media, and from time to time I see, oh, what if BLM uh, meant Black Liberation Movement instead of Black Lives Matter? Be in the well, same... Well, uh, well it, it is. Uh, and and uh, it is, and it's not, right? So mm-hmm. when I say it is, is it is part of uh, Black Liberation uh, it is a component of it. Um, and in all movements, there's various tendencies. And so the BLM, in terms of the Black Lives Movement, is a tendency that's emerged based on the conditions that exist now and based on young people mm-hmm. who don't necessarily have uh, a deeper historical understanding of the movement in general. Some are getting there, right? So And, uh, and, and so when people say, well, why are they burning buildings? Well... You know, uh, folks have said, well, what, you know, when we think about what's going on, like what, what else is it that, you know, you, you, you keep re- resisting and giving us the, treating us like human beings. So, you know, that's the result of that. But the point that I'm saying is, is that uh, there are people who are not accepting a little of, of, of nothing and saying that that's change. Mm-hmm. Right now, the, the Black Lives Matter movement has its own particular situation. The Black Liberation Movement has a different a broader uh, understanding of what freedom, well, I say a more specific understanding of what freedom means. And so it doesn't mean being part of a government that has keeps its, its foot on our neck. It means that we have a right to determine what we're going to do as a people, that we have the right to self-determination in addressing this question of, of sovereignty versus having other people make decisions for us. And so that goes back to our historical uh, evolution in this society and even going back to slavery, right? And so the truth of the matter is, is that once they abolished slavery, well, then this, we should have been negoti- negotiating. It says like, well, how many ships you got for us? And, uh, and where's them docking? Where'd you bring this group and that group? And, uh, and, and where's the money to pay for it? And where's the money to pay for severing us for our inheritance, the damage that you've done to us? None of that was done. Well, in the Civil War, they talk about 40 acres and a mule. Now they're talking about reparations. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So the question of the Black Liberation Movement is that we have a movement, you know, to talk about us as Black people and us making decisions for ourselves about what we want to do. Now, there's tendencies of that because there are people who have more of a narrow, a narrow nationalist view, and the people who have a more internationalist view. I, I work with people who have a more internationalist view, right? And so, and if there are white folks who want to support that and respect the leadership and the decisions of the Black people. You're welcome, but we will determine what we want to do and so forth and not be subjected to a white dominant, white supremacist nation. So, so it's some ideological differences in that, whereas you find BLM in some ways, some of them are, are, are working in conjunction you know, with the existing political parties, which I ain't got a real a problem, but however you work with them, we still have to put our demands as 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 a, as a movement and say, you know, our, it's not just to integrate with you. You know what I'm saying? That don't mean that we can't be a part, you know, and, and that you treat us like anybody else, but we have a right, you know, to make decisions for ourselves as a nation of people. And so some people have issues of saying we're a nation of people. And I'm saying is that, well, you know, uh, you, people can't decide or make decisions for us. We have to make decisions for ourselves about how we see ourselves. Now, what kind of impediments is the Black Liberation Movement, what, what is considered today the Black Liberation Movement facing? What kind of obstacles? And then is there a risk of seeing the movement dismantled, as was the case with, the, for instance, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense uh, through the COINTELPRO? Well, yeah, but it wasn't just the, the Panthers, mm-hmm. per se, that uh, it goes back even before the Panthers. Um, it goes back, you know, to uh, Garvey, Du Bois, Hubert Harrison, you know, uh, many other uh, more nationalist, uh, a- as well as nationalist forces, um, you know, who were subjected to the U.S. government's, you know, uh, 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 domination uh, and so forth. So the impediments are pretty much the same as they have been, right? And part of that is divide and conquer, right? Uh, you know, and so in uh, the fragmentation of our movement and the different ideological tendencies uh, that exist. And so what you do is, this is the whole point when you, you know, you use the, the NAACP as the barometer, you know, uh, for black people. Um, and so uh, we need an independent uh, movement, you know, and not one that's financed by major corporations that's exploiting black people, whether they be in the United States, in Africa, South America, Central America, the Caribbean, or anywhere else, you see. So we need independent organizations to make independent decisions about, you know, black people. And so the impediments is that we're still at war. People don't want to hear that. Uh, but in terms of them attacking the right for people to decide for themselves, this should not be new because the United States government does that internationally. You know, this it's situation in Venezuela is very clear of them trying to throw a coup in Venezuela in, in terms of them taking some person that wasn't elected to be president and make him the president. You, you understand, right? But it, it's a dirty game. When you start treating leaders like that, uh, and so we're subjected to the same thing because I, we still got black people who are in prison because they're political prisoners, because they decide to fight against the U.S. government, you know, unjust policies against or, or laws against black people uh, and so forth. You know, uh, what happened to Malcolm? Was that some accident? What happened to Dr. King? Was that some accident? <laughs> You understand? You know, uh, and so, yes, there's always a danger of that. But. What's so beautiful about this moment 
is what young people were telling us. It's just like when they put black people on those slave ships. What other choice you got but to fight? So even though you got the corona, right, or virus, it's like what you starving. So that's like they and the message. Look, that's not going to stop us. You see. Uh, so, but it's the real question of how do we uh, bring unity and 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 uh, and 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 deal with the fragmentation so that we have a united movement uh, to move forward and so forth. And so that's the important. That's a historical question, right? How do we deal uh, with the imperialist nation, right? who's hell-bent on trying to deal with global dominance. And, and they've used us all kinds of ways, and they'll just try to destroy us. But they haven't been successful yet. And they won't be. And um, so still in that uh, same wavelength, you mentioned earlier that there are several tendencies in what you call or we call the Black Liberation Movements, and that yours is more internationalist. In that sense, what does Africa represent or should represent in the grand scheme of the Black Liberation Movement? So uh, when I say that we are more internationalists, it, it means is that, um, you know, that you have black people in America, you have a, a, a good chunk uh, who were uh, Africans who were brought to the South, then you had Africans that was taken to places that became Jamaica, uh, you know, uh, uh, Trinidad, various uh, Cuba, various Caribbean islands that they took African people to, uh, and that they were colonized uh, 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 culturally by the Spanish and the French and the Dutch and the Portuguese and, and so forth, right? Um, and so uh, we recognize that our colonization or our oppression is is you know, nothing unique, but it's intertwined with all of those African people uh, there, right? So in many ways, there's a there's a that sort of Pan-Africanist uh, understanding and see our connection to Africa. And first and foremost is that we got to be clear, is that Africa is the mother of civilization, right? And the truth is, is that uh, the world uh, has a common ancestry to Africa, they won't admit it, right? And they won't do it because you you wonder, you know. And so this whole issue of racism, you know, that did, did exists, uh, making it seem as if black people are inferior and white people are superior is nonsense, right? Because if black people are inferior, that means everybody inferior because that's where everybody come from. You understand? Mm -hmm. So uh, Africa is very important uh, because... Uh, that 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 Africa is also when we talk about the Black Liberation Movement, Africa is fragmented. Look, you know, you all these different you, nations and countries, and the influence of the French and the British and the U.S. and you know, and everybody got their little, you know, still got their little influence uh, there. Uh, and that you have this deep neo-colonialist situation uh, that folks are still trying to fight against. Uh, you know, around that. Uh, so we see those connections, you know, uh, a related connection uh, and a related interest, uh, you know, as black people. And Malcolm made it very clear. He said, just because you take puppies and you put them in the oven, don't make them biscuits, you know. And so just because you take Africans and put them in other places, don't make us something else. We're still Africans. Right. Uh, but that takes a deeper consciousness for us to realize that and to deal with that uh, that process. Uh, but I would say that uh, Africa is the parent 
to the world. Period. Um, we're still gonna stay on that theme of uh, liberation movements. A uh, few years ago, you helped draft uh, what is called the Freedom Manifesto, mm-hmm. and in that manifesto, it is stated that the fight of the Black Liberation Movement is against capitalism, and it still asserts in the manifesto that, and I'm I'm quoting here, yeah. capitalism stinks. And is not the system that we need to lead decent and meaningful lives. Yes. What are the alternatives do you propose uh, well, to capitalism? Well, the the first part is, uh, you know, I agree with uh, with, and Dr. King said it said it sim- similar, but uh, in another way, uh, Malcolm said that you show me a capitalist, I'll show you a bloodsucker, um, and so. Uh, capitalism is is based on the exploitation of people and that you know Walter Rodney talks about this of how Europe undeveloped Africa right uh, and so uh, so this system that the, the 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 money and the riches they have is based on you know them the uh, uh, our free and exploited labor right so the question becomes is that this notion of folks owning all of this stuff and we don't have anything. So the question is, is that how do we try to create an economic system where there's equity? And so in other words, uh, a lot of people raise the question, does labor drives capital or does capital drive labor? Well, you have all the capital you want, but it ain't going to go nowhere unless, you know, labor is moving it, right? Mm-hmm. But labor doesn't get its value. We don't receive the value based on our labor. So other than our health, the most important part that we got is our labor, right? Uh, and so uh, when you have people, uh, pretty much private companies driving the healthcare system, driving the housing market and everything else, and, and, and you're going to pay people less than $15 an hour, how do you expect them to live, right? Mm-hmm. So now the point is, is that uh, the truth of the matter is, whose land is this? Whose water is it? Who, who's, who's re- this, this is the earth, who does the earth belong to? So we got to start thinking a little bit differently in terms of how we are going to build communities and uh, in, in that healthcare, uh, that uh, education, uh, uh, work, all these are human rights, right? Uh, and that it's not a privilege, it's a right to get education. It's not a, it's a right to have healthcare. And so what are we using uh, the money of the people for? So you spend all this money, billions of dollars in war in other nations, and then you can't, and particularly now, the president can't make sure that every person living in this country could get hand sanitizers and a face mask, right? Well, where, where's the people's money going to? It's going to their friends that own these corporations versus terms of creating cooperative, sense of cooperative economics, you know, alternative economic systems. You know, people would say, well, it's socialism. But sometimes they say socialism and not really define it. What they'll do is make socialism for rich people here. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So when that, when, when th- those, th- those trillions of dollars went out, who got the most of it? The people didn't get it. Those corporations got it. That's insane. So, so the point is, is that, so what's a better system? Well, a better system is making sure that it's going to the people. So if you got a business, well, if your business can't cut the mustard, it fails. I thought that's what that was about. But you're going to probably, so, so the truth of the matter is that the corporations get more welfare or subsidies than the people get. 
You see, mm-hmm. so there are examples, and and Bangladesh try it. In some ways, they failed a little bit in terms of uh, the the uh, revolving uh, uh, loan funds. Uh, uh, Mandagon, in terms of the Basque regions, in terms of the cooperative movement, those are examples in terms of worker co-ops. In other ways, where there's a more equitable distribution, and that people are getting based on the labor that they produce, and not this other value that's like, where, where that come from. How you can have CEOs making ten million dollars, uh, you know, like a month and so forth. <laughs> Like what kind of work they do to make that, and then you got people doing all the work, and then they still get can't get decent health care, right? So we have to look into alternative ways of creating uh, uh, cooperatives in our community, where the people own that more than just some corporations or some individuals. That mm-hmm. needs to be outlawed. It doesn't make any sense because I don't care how much how smart they are, you know. Uh, don't don't mean that they deserve that. Cuba is a great example of that. Look what Cuba has done. They've probably been the least impacted by the corona, and they probably one of the poorest nations. Yet they still been able to send doctors around the world to help people. Now you know uh, they they got a healthcare system, you know, in which people have access to full access to. They get what they can out of that system. How's that possible? So obviously they're doing something economically that other people need to consider, especially now considering where we are with this pandemic and dealing with institutional racism. And it's about distributing those resources differently. But these folks are fighting tooth and nail because they ain't trying to do that. (laughs) So now, do you think that this fight against capitalism as as we know it today, do you think it could potentially create another bipolarization of the world as we knew it back in the after the second world war where you have the uh communists and the capitalists you know fighting yeah each other yeah and each uh group trying to impose its yeah. uh economic and political right. system do you fear something like that happening well, well, again with this? well it's not again it's it's been happening it, they they stopped <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right, but I mean, it's not as clear cut as it was back in the uh, right because 50s, they 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 love they love people to sleep. 80s. They they, they love people to sleep. They created illusion. You know, they you know they 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 control the mass media. They control what people think, what they see, and and also which will go to their beliefs. And so the reality is, is that when you think about it, is that. Uh, you can make America look all at once, but you go down to Mississippi, you go down to Alabama and look at how them black people still live and poor people live. You go in some of the, some of the mountains of Appalachia and, and you go like, well, dang, you know, like white folks live like this, right? So what I'm saying is, is that uh, the question uh, is that they will make it because that's what they did before. They said it's about, you know, against communism, you know, versus, you know, ca- that, that, that's nonsense. Mm-hmm. It's about humanity or inhumanity, so, so we got to frame it. We can't let somebody mm-hmm. frame the narrative for us. That's the trick, right? It's about humanity versus inhumanity. And so the system we have is one for inhumanity. The system that exists now, how is it that you are going to put a blockade on a nation talking about you want to deal with political leadership where you don't care about the people? So what are the people going to do? You're going to let the people die? You're going to let people starve? So that's inhumane, Right. You see, and then and they say, well, they're communists, and, this, and, this. and most of the people don't even know what a communist is. They don't. They don't even know what a capitalist is. They but don't. they know when they go to work, they say, well, they're keeping all the money, so they know that part, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Right? So the point of it is, is that it's already polarized, and it's becoming even more polarized because capitalism is in a crisis right now. You know, especially after, look, 
This pandemic has shut the world down. No planes is flying in places. I mean, you know, a little bit of travel, but I mean, it's been shut down. People can't go into the hotels, right? Money ain't moving the way that folks who make money, you know, like it to move, right? So, uh, you know, and, and, and what's the U.S.? They, they're trying to blame it. It says, you know, it's the communists over in Cuba. We have to stop them from sending medications to everybody else. <laughs> they don't make any, you can't make this up. Same thing in Venezuela and every, everywhere else. But if we was humane, right, we'll be trying to use our resources to be able to help the world heal. But but US does does help um, does send a lot of help out there. Where to the rest of the world? <laughs> right. I mean, many places you have <laughs> right. US aid. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have US aid yeah, right. helping uh, right in 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 many developing countries, for instance. Well, the question so, is, and we mm-hmm. go back to Walter Rodney. What's development and what's development, right? And and what kind of help? And mm-hmm. a lot of times, those are like political situations of which they're using that to position themselves. It's like PR in some ways. You know, it's mm-hmm. like you write your own press release. Hey, look at us. We're helping these little kids, poor kids in Africa, you know, all these other starving people who in somewhere else. No, they're not helping the people help themselves. They're trying to control the political situation, right? And so we have to, you know, be uh, understand that. And many times with some of these organizations, these are tax write-offs, these are other political maneuvers and so forth, but that's not straight up. You know, they're not straight up. Uh, in fact, they're, they're the problems, a problem why other people have problems. So one of your research interests is uh, spirituality, especially African and black spirituality. And over the decade, we've seen that, we've seen the importance of the black church in the fight for freedom. Mm-hmm. And today we see more and more African American turn to Africa and other places in, in the diaspora for spiritual guidance. What is the place of spirituality and African black philosophical thoughts in black Americans fight against oppression and racism? Well, that helps center us. Uh, and and I and I would say at least it helped. It's helped centered me, and it's helped center other people, because it helps us um, provide some meaning uh, and hope out of a situation that's very de- desperate and could look hopeless, right? Um, and that it also helps us keep our humanity in in check. You understand? Because it's about values. It's about revolutionary values. Um, it's about character. It's about revolutionary character. Meaning is that when we talk about spirituality, we're talking about the sacred. Uh, and the sacred versus what the profane, that duality. And so it's about us trying to do the things that's good in combating the things that are bad. Right? Uh, and to sh- constantly struggle to stay on that path, or as James Brown would say, to stay on the one, right? You know, on that beat, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and so, um, it 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 and 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 the other part is that the 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 experience, the knowledge of African people is deep, right? But because of uh, colonization and racism and white supremacy, it minimizes our experiences uh, versus uh, seeing uh, that for the parents of civilization and the knowledge that it has been able to produce, why would you throw that out 
those values out the window and not trying to embrace it. So what they've done is accept, you know, the profane, you know, as their values and made it seem like the sacred, you see. And so with African spirituality, we go back to the to the to the roots, you know, to the to the center in terms of how we should try to behave and act and, and treat treat each other. Uh, and that, you know, that because uh, they didn't manufacture or produce their knowledge in books don't mean there's not knowledge out there. The value of oral tradition, which has been passed on, is still exists today in terms of how we need to look and deal with each other. Unfortunately, there's some of us who are spiritual, you know, don't necessarily follow that the way we should follow it. But the fact is it is there for us to follow. It's what we do with it. And so more people are embracing that. And and so it contradicts other belief systems, you know, especially when you look at Christianity. I mean, after all, they had a ship call that brought African people over here in the worst harbor conditions called the good the, with the good ship Jesus. You, you understand? So so right there, you know, is like every Christian, every important Christian should be doing a lecture on that and trying to make amends to that. But I, I haven't heard that yet. You, you, you understand? Uh, and so uh, the point is that, especially now when we're talking about the uh, anti-black racism struggle, well, part of that is to begin to uplift, you know, African spirituality, you know, an African, uh, uh, um, you know, sort of b- b- a, a belief system in terms of uh, its contribution, uh, African knowledge, you know, because that's the, the because the the, the it, it's, there's a philosophy and ethics that's in that system, mm-hmm. and the stories uh, from the observations of our ancestors, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, didn't separate you know human beings from nature, and that they saw it being interrelated. And so there's stories about birds and trees and fish and and other kinds of stuff when people were interacting all as one until contradictions begin to divide it. That's profound, right? So then we have a better sense of, of nature, of the environment. Talk about environmentalism. Well, that, that's what we were, right? You know, in terms of recycling and doing things and having a, a love for nature, which is, which is getting weak and weak and weak. So, uh, and so you find African uh, spiritual belief system uh, spreading uh, globally, uh, it's, it's spread it globally before, but even where you have other ethnicities, you know, uh, non-African, so to speak, and I put quote, quotation marks on that, you know, wanted to embrace that because of his values and his beliefs. But if we don't want him to embrace it to try to recolonize or redominate us, but be able to put them in check in terms of what their character is and what their values should be to honor humanity, to honor uh, their mothers and fathers that gave birth to civilization and so forth. So it's not about, you know, uh, seeing this as to, to be dominant, but it's about how do we create, you know, uh, equality and equity and humanity in terms of our belief system. And so for me, this is what, you know, African spirituality means and, and what it's done for me. Mm-hmm. So in 2004, uh, you edited and published a book entitled uh, The State of the Race, along with Dr. Jimondari Kamara. What is the state of the race today? And what has changed since the book was published almost a decade and a half ago? I would say that um, there's been a, a, a new wave of resistance. 
Um, uh, and so when you uh, look at Katrina, you look at a lot of the um, uh, uh, movements uh, that uh, uh, that uh, uprisings as a result of you know murders by police officers and so forth. Um, that there's more motion, uh, you know, more resistance. It's still fragmented, right? Uh, and and now with the corona uh, uh, exposing the deep roots of racism, now there's a anti-racism movement. So even though people are responding in terms of symbols and taking down, you know, statues and pictures, all that's well and good. But the point is, is that how do we uh, create structural change and accountability because so we had the 13th and 14th 15th amendments mm -hmm. but that's what we're still dealing with so it, it was law they just didn't carry it out or enforce it now we have to put the point where they have to enforce it and so what's changed is that people aren't sitting down uh watching good times anymore or these funny movies and so forth even though as the pandemic uh, you know, go aside. People want to go to the baseball game or watch baseball, or whatever. But people are saying, no, we have to take action. We have to exercise our voice. Uh, if they say it's a democracy, then we have to exercise that democracy of protest and so forth. The question becomes, uh, you know, how do we put together our demands? How do we create a national black assemblies in which we are getting the masses involved to create a, a point where they got to deal with us? Right. Um, and we had a dangerous point. I mean, you know, it's very clear, you know, what James Baldwin said is that, you know, and I don't know if you, you saw there was a, uh, besides James Baldwin, but there was a piece where um, the uh, a comedian, uh, had, uh, I'm, I'm trying to recall his name, what's his, what's his name? Chappelle, David Chappelle. David Chappelle. Right. He, you know, he did a, after the, the, the corona, he did a, a presentation and he says, look, he says, you know, talking is good and, you know, but this is the last go round and otherwise it's going to be a rat-a-tat-tat-tat-tat-tat. And so what he did is he invoked James Baldwin and said it's the fire next time. Well, you know, we had a lot of fires and it seems that that's when they started to listen to us, that they try to throw money or, you know, to water those, those fires down. But we had a point where it's very desperate and especially now because it's just not black people who are hurting now. Right. You got these restaurants and businesses that will never open again. Mm -hmm. So they're going to be ticked. And then you got black people who ain't going to, you know, be able to go back to them jobs. So it's going to be very difficult, you know, again. So the state of, uh, uh, of black people has gotten worse. Right. You, you, you understand? Uh, and so the question is that how do we organize ourselves to fight and make sure that what resources that the nation has that they got to make sure that it's dealt with equitably and that as opposed to spending billions of dollars, not just with the police domestically, but the military nationally, you know, to be able to suppress other people's right to democracies. You see what I'm saying? You know, and so when you think of that, you says, oh, well, you know, uh, because Dr. King said that we had to deal with the triplets, you know, of, of racism of of material of, of 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 materialism and militarism, you know, uh, and so forth, and so, you know, this this is an issue that we, if we don't deal with, is is going to get real com com complex, you know, real complicated, you see, uh, and so uh, you you saw what happened in Kentucky, 
you know, and I and I'm just saying is that when you start to say this has happened in the '60s, you know, a black militia, armed militia, it wasn't like 20. It was like you know, it, it was it's a good number. Now I don't think that uh, that's that we we ready for that because a lot of people are gonna get hurt. But we have to organize ourselves, engage in civil disobedience, as Dr. King said, you know, and create the kind of tension, the political tension in the nation for them to address it because they still try to position themselves as being, you know, the savior of the world. You know, we're the good guys of the world. And the world says, no, 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 you're not. Right. Now, they'll fake the funk because they'll give some money to this nation or that nation to vote for them. But folks know it's bad. And so capitalism is in a crisis. Right. Yeah. Uh, like you said, it's good to go out there and protest. It's part of the what makes a democracy work. And uh, but I also hope that uh, everything will remain peaceful and uh, the people will listen. Yes. Right. Yes. And the, the important part, leaders need to listen yes. to the people. Yeah. Now everybody is on edge mm-hmm. due to the coronavirus. And then, you know, you have the tragedies. Uh, the death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Omar Aubrey, and countless other uh, people. And people are on edge, mm-hmm. right? But uh, no matter how difficult it is, I hope that people will uh, still remain calm yeah. and and still protest because yeah, that's yeah. important in any democracy, yeah, right? Yeah. But peacefully. Yeah. Uh, so earlier you mentioned... <laughs> Like being arrested on 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 your campus where yes. you work at. Yes. This is UMass Boston. UMass Boston. Do you do you want to? Well, in two in two in two in two thousand and three, mm-hmm. uh, when the war in Iraq broke out, mm. uh, we were organizing on campus, and um, I had uh, organized uh, you know uh, students and community groups, uh, and we were going around you know in different community transportation centers, you know, with a poster of Dr. King. Um, you know, this says no to war, yes to peace, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and so forth. And and it's just so happened, you know, it was around, I think, April the 3rd, the day right before uh, the anniversary of Dr. King's assassination, that we're at my school. I was with a, a young student of mine, a white student, who took my Martin and Malcolm, cl- uh, Dr. Uh, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King class. Uh, he's a lawyer now, by the way. Uh, he had on a shirt that says military uh, 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 offices off my campus give money to education, not to war. Mm-hmm. And it was some recruiters there, army recruiters. And, um, you know, so he was there, you know, protesting it. And I came along with, a, you know, uh, I skiered to a ray because we were going to go out. We had flyers, you know, to organize in the community. And he says, oh, there's my professor now. And he says, professor, isn't, isn't it, uh, you know, true? I, I could be here doing it. I said, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the military officers start packing their stuff and left. And they walked by to Tony and they said, uh, are you helping them organize it? He says, yes. He says, you should be shot in the head too. Wow. And I was like, oh, oh. And they walked away. I said, you, you, you can't So say- they said that to your students? Yes, yes. And yes. who were who they? There was, the, there was the recruiters, military recruiters. The military recruiters said that that to that my student. student should exactly. be shot in the head. You should be you should be shot in the head too. Oh my! And God. I said you can't. And so the the so so they and, and I said you can't. You know I'm you know I was agitated. You know, mm-hmm. and they came right back to me like they gonna stand. I says I'm not intimidated by you, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So you can't say. And so there was campus police there, and he took the side of the police. The campus police on our campus 
took to the side of the police and decided to squash my freedom of speech and pushed me. And I told him, don't put his hands on me. Next thing you know, I got knocked down by the police and was arrested on my campus and, and um, handcuffed, you know, right, uh, uh, you know, to the campus police, right against the wall, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, squashed in the car and took to the local jail with handcuffs on my ankles and hands. And, wow. you know, and, uh, and uh, what was funny because I had a student that worked in the courthouse and he came and says, Professor, are you all right? She took my Malcolm and Martin class right before. Wow. And then, you know, the guards would come down and says, oh, yeah, you all right, guys. So they brought me upstairs and the court was packed with all my students in the community group. And, and, wow. and the judge says, all right, let him out on his own recognition. That must have been a very proud moment, uh, too. <laughs> Well, I mean, that moment it, was, it was but a, I, I was, was depressed. A, yeah, I, right. you, you were in a very difficult situation. Yeah, no, but, but it was good. I, oh, it was beautiful. To see your students. It was beautiful. Um, it was be- and then they said, come on, professor. Then they brought you know, they brought me back to campus and had the news press there. And, and I had a coat. You know, and they said, put that jacket back on, you know, because it was all ripped up and everything. Wow. And I said, look, 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 like they treat me like I was an Iraqi, you know. <laughs> <So> <laughs> and that's not a laughing matter, but, you know, it, you, you had to... You know, but I was definitely uh, proud of, of of my students because you know they they have to stand up, you know, for what is right and mm-hmm. and and what's going on. And but it also showed me that uh, you know one of my students who worked in the courthouse and then she talked to other people, so they were like, well, you know, what's what's going on here? You know, so you, you, the the struggle is for the minds of people. You see, and we got to win the minds of people for what is just is what our real struggle is. Mm-hmm. You know, and we have to decide that as a people mm-hmm. so that all of us and not just where we are in our little communities or or or, or, or countries but in as the world you know we have to do that and that's the kind of internationalism that we have to exhibit mm-hmm. i started this new thing uh, with my guests before i conclude the podcast is ask them three questions number one is your top three novels top three novels you've read when you say novels, fiction. So um, that's a that's a that's a good one. Um, of course, um, I used to use. I mean, it's more older fiction, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which was um, Baldwin's. You know, uh, the which is really the fire next time. But um, I I had there's a, um, so I'm I'm reading. Homegoing, uh, and I usually use uh, things fall apart. Things uh, fall apart by Achebe. Achebe, right, Achebe, right, Nigerian writer. Right, homegoing. Homegoing is Yah. I'm trying to. Uh, she's from Ga- uh, Guyana. I'm not Guyana, Ghana, and I'm, I'm trying to pronounce her last name. But mm-hmm. uh, we're going to use that as a, a novel for freshmen mm-hmm. um, in our uh, um, uh, beginning class. You know. Uh, around that, um, and it's a few others, you know. But uh, and I've been actually looking for a book that addressed some of the, my criticisms of mm-hmm. things fall apart, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Um, around that, um, so yeah, I, yeah. I, I would, I would, I would. So it's yeah, yeah, Giasi. Yeah, Giasi. There you go. Thank you, Giasi. No, it's, it, it is right. Giasi. Yeah, yeah, Giasi. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. Because it, it, what it does is that it talks about going. Right. It talks about two sisters, you know, in sort of like the seventeen hundreds, 
and one is sort of brought here and one is, you know, hooked up with the British and marries some British officer mm-hmm. and it talks about how they move on and they end up coming and meeting, mm-hmm. you know, sort of, uh, you know, back in the States, uh, you know, where their, their family, their lineage begins to connect and it comes up to now so that you could start to look at, you know, what, you know, the, the sort of, uh, uh, sort of uh, the, col- the colonial process look like and the the whole piece around the slave trade and you know what was happening in the U.S. and and all that kind of stuff and so we're mm-hmm. we're looking at or, you know doing that novel and then dealing with different kinds of stories in that section to be able to look at the historical periods and what it meant. So that helps us you know do that. So okay. mm-hmm. so is uh, Giasi is uh, the name of the author. Yes. Now top three fishes. Uh, Your top three favorite dishes. Top three favorite dishes. That's a that's a uh, interesting uh, question. <laughs> I mean, I've been so I've been cooking lately, and I've been uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know I've been getting my curry stuff together. Okay, curry. and uh, you know so it's getting it's getting better. The last batch didn't work out too well, but the one for that. <laughs> what kind of what kind of curry? Like um, yellow, red, masuman. Um, more, more. I would Jamaican say more more, more Jamaican curry. Okay. But sometimes I don't use that, and I use some of the Indian, you know, okay, uh, uh, pieces to do oh, that. And I was doing too. it with chicken. I was doing it with lamb, and I did one with lamb. And I was, oh man, I, I was, I, I, I felt so bad because I want to call for something. You got to come and taste this, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm a curry yeah. enthusiast myself. Right, I right. Some good, right, good curry dishes. Yes. <laughs> now, when in Suriname, I like, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, uh, they they do a, a whole roti piece there. So like the the palate and surname is because you have Indonesian, you have East Indian, you have you know uh, 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 you know uh, more African based, and you know so it's this mixture of it's stuff, a, yes. right? You know, mm-hmm. um, and of course you know when I go to Cuba, you, you know is that they they have. Uh, you know, they 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 you know rice and beans and the way they cook their chicken and and so forth. So, you, you know, uh, you know, and and I and I, you know, sometimes I go to the Vietnamese spot and do that, or I'll try to you know yeah. do some of that. But I try to I don't eat beef, mm. right? You know, or pork, okay. right? So I do chickens and and then I've been doing a little lamb and and so forth and fish. fish. So you, you know, I'm I'm. That's a hard question, oh, you know. Cool. It's like I mean, it sounds like you're a foodie. You wish you there you go. Good, that's you know? right. That's so, right. That's right. Uh, you try different stuff from different places. And when you're in a cultural, you you there you go. Right there you go. And the last question: top three places you haven't been to yet, but would love to visit sometime soon. <sighs> South Africa. South Africa. Uh, Japan. Japan. Mm-hmm. And. Um, well, so that's again. So I wanted to go to um, uh, to Bolivia mm. uh, because it was one of the safest places until this coup that happened, and uh, and then I realized that there was a young man there uh, who's a, a who who's from Cuba, and um, you know I did some spiritual work for him, and he's he he. he Ended up being a, a sports journalist, and he was there. But then after the coup, it just I was upset, and I'd always been interested in China at one point because I remember, you know, uh, uh, when uh, Akram Burton 
had gone to China in the 70s and he came back and he was telling us all kinds of stories. I'm like, whoa, you know, I mean, you know, Akran, man, it was like my hero, man. He he was traveling around the world. He's going to Africa. Oh, he was yeah. in Cuba. He, still he was does. In, right, you know, he was in, in China and mm-hmm. you know he brings stuff back. It's like, wow, you know. So, you know, I got to go to uh, you know, uh, uh to Africa and, and to Cuba and so forth and you know, uh, you know, Suriname and but I haven't gone to uh to uh to, to China. So but that and okay. other places, I mean I you know, I mean I you know, I I wanna go all you know, various all places place. in Africa, you know, I mean okay. so but that's I would say prior pr- priority. All right, so South Africa, Bolivia and Japan. Yes. Recorded. All right, well uh Dr. Vandermeer, uh thank you very much for being our guest on the Africanist, it was a pleasure to talk with you and I hope to have you back here sometime soon to talk more about your research and uh, your activism in, here in the Boston area. Thank you, Bambo. It Thank was my pleasure. Yeah. Alright guys, so that's it and I will talk to you guys soon and in the meantime, stay safe and tune in next time for more of the Africanist. Con jamu Africa, mon lañan. Mane jamu Africa, moy suñu natan.